We've been doing some jigsaw puzzles in our house over the school and uni holidays. To be honest, I've not done a lot of jigsaws myself. Leanne is the champion in our house. How important is it to have that picture of what you're shooting for? We've been doing this 1,500-piece picture of one of the cities of Cinque Terre in Italy on the side of the Mediterranean. It is hard, so much sea and water and little houses on the side of the cliffs, but good fun. Then again, imagine you didn't have a picture of the whole thing when you're doing a jigsaw puzzle. James has a unique perspective on life. Brother to Jesus, apostolic leader of the Jerusalem church, he's observed a lot of life and a lot of life in the early church. He's waited until the early 60s AD and then written a general letter heavily based on the Sermon on the Mount and the first nine chapters of the book of Proverbs. He can see the whole picture. Through the eyes of a wise elder in the faith, James is painting a paradigm for life. And he's also painting a pathway through the challenges of this paradigm. Paradigm is an interesting word. I was introduced to it while studying missiology at Theological College a long time ago. Every culture has a way of seeing the world, a philosophy to make sense of life. A paradigm is a pattern, a model for understanding. James has been developing a thesis about the way life is, a paradigm for understanding both the spirituality of faith and the practicality of faith. Today we're in chapter 4, where we find James drawing together his teaching into a, a cohesive paradigm for life, through which he also provides a pathway to follow. He's basically giving us a look at the entire jigsaw. So what is his paradigm? James began his letter by acknowledging that life has its fair share of trials, and he suggested that believers should receive these challenges with a joyful spirit because they know that through trials and tribulations and temptations, our faith as followers of Jesus develops and matures towards teleos, which is perfection in the Lord. Chapter 4 teaches that the challenges of life are in fact the paradigm of life. Every one of us has an internal war against our own fleshly desires, verse 1 to 3. We struggle against the tide of the world pulling us away from godliness, verses 4 to 6. And we battle against a very real spiritual adversary, the devil. This is frequently summarized under the threefold heading, the flesh, the world, and the devil. James suggests that there is a pathway through this challenging paradigm and it's found in verse 7 to 10. It involves drawing near to God, resisting the devil, and being clothed in Christ's righteousness. So, paradigm problem number one, the flesh. James writes, What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You desire but do not have, so you kill. You covet but you cannot get what you want, so you quarrel and fight. You do not have because you do not ask God. When you ask, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives, that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. 
James is dealing with false teachers in the early church who have really caused some damage to the way people interact with each other. James has identified some of the issues. They're fighting and they're quarrelling, even to the point of killing. Now, it's hard to know exactly what this means other than they're having some serious church fights, aren't they? They're coveting what others have and then fighting some more. James says the church, it's not praying enough. And when they do pray, wow, those prayers are ugly. They're selfish, arrogant and misguided prayers. Where did this church come from? I thought the early church were meant to be the ones that we put on a pedestal and say, you know, if only we could go back and be just like the faith-filled, miracle-working early church. To be honest, they seem pretty festy. And of course, all you have to do is read your New Testament to discover that this is very widespread. People are people. And they struggle with sin. They struggle with what the Bible calls the flesh. They struggle with how to internally respond to the trials of life. James hones in on it in verse 1. What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? The word for desire here is hedone, which means pleasure or desire. So the people have all sorts of desires, many of them lustful, which is often what we think of by the words pleasure and desire, but certainly not all. In verse 2, James uses a different word that is translated also as desire. That word is epithumeo. Jesus used this word to describe the desire that righteous people had for the truth. Matthew thirteen seventeen says, Truly I tell you, many prophets and righteous people longed, epithumeo, to see what you see, but did not see it, and to hear what you hear, but did not hear it. The point is, human beings have desires that war against their souls. It's exactly what Peter says in 1 Peter 2.11. Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. Desire causes fights, quarrels, coveting. Jealousy, harsh treatment, injustice, selfishness. Desire allowed to reign supreme in a person's life causes pain. This desire is referred to as the flesh. And the flesh is bent towards sin. Galatians says in 5.17, For the flesh desires what is contrary to the spirit, and the spirit what is contrary to the flesh. They're in conflict with each other so that you are not to do whatever you want. In his life, we can't always trust the ideas that we come up with. You can't always trust that your inner voice will always be good. It's the paradigm presented by James. He says, beware the desires of the flesh. They ruin churches. They shipwreck lives. Now you might be sitting there thinking, I don't struggle with sinful desire like that. It might be because you're assuming that as I said before, it really means lust. But unhelpful desire is so much more than that. It's the desire for revenge. It's 
the desire for power. It's the desire to control others. It's the desire to be seen, to be admired. It's the desire to harm others through anger, to inflict pain on others through our, our nasty manner. It's the desire to be lazy and unproductive with our lives. Churches can be just as guilty of these attitudes as any group of people meeting together. As James says, this should not be so. Of course, we're talking about the general problem of sin, but James is narrowing in on inordinate desire that drives us to behave a certain way. Now, to be honest, it's a bit depressing. Surely humans are better than this. Well, of course we can be, but we all struggle with this thing called the flesh. James's paradigm doesn't end with the internal challenge. He says, we're also being assaulted from without, from what he calls the world. Paradigm problem number two, the world. He writes, you adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world means enmity against God? Therefore, anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Or do you think Scripture says without reason that he jealously longs for the spirit he has caused to dwell in us? But he gives us more grace. That is why Scripture says God opposes the proud but shows favour to the humble. To be worldly for the churches that James is writing to, means really to be Roman, Greco-Roman, but probably more so Roman. James is using language that sounds like the prophets of Israel denouncing Israel as an adulterous generation. Paul puts it like this to Timothy, 2 Timothy 3, 4. There will be terrible times in the last days. People will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boastful, proud, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, without love, unforgiving, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not lovers of the good, treacherous, rash, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. 1 John 2.15 writes this, Do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, love for the Father is not in them, for everything in the world the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life comes not from the Father, but from the world. The world and its desires pass away, but whoever does the will of God lives forever. And finally, James said in chapter 1, verse 27, Religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress, and to keep one's self from being polluted by the world. Here, James teaches, the paradigm to watch out for is the flesh, which will war against us. So, to be a Christian, there will have to be times when our inner desires don't get their own way. Simple as that. And, he says, the world will want to be friends with you. The world, the anti-God system that says God is not as real as you might think. James says, don't be friends with the world. After his 60 years of observing life, the world says, look out for number one, yourself. James says the paradigm for pain involves being a friend of the world. You, you don't want to be 
a friend of the world. But what does it mean to be a friend of the world? I guess this is where it gets hard, doesn't it? Does not being a friend of the world mean that you can't be sophisticated and cultured and aware of music and movies and shows and books? Does it mean you're not meant to drink or dance or go away on private holidays before you're married or live together before you're married? I think it means some of those things, but not all. What is it to be worldly and therefore a, a friend of the world? And what is it to keep yourself from being polluted by the world? The answer, it's something. To keep yourself from being polluted by the world means there's something different in your life if you follow Jesus. Amen. There's some difference between the culture of the world and the culture of Christ. Jesus loved sinners, but he wasn't one. There needs to be some difference between you as a follower of Jesus and your pagan friends who are living under the unrestrained power of desire. James says you can be an enemy of God by the way you live. James 4.4 4. Anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. But as soon as James writes this, he says, Don't you know that the Spirit jealously longs for the Spirit he has caused to dwell in us, but he gives us more grace? That's why Scripture says God opposes the proud but shows favor to the humble. God wants to know you, be close to you, to be a father to you, to cleanse us, to free us, to love us. His favour is ready to be poured out. When we're friends of the world, he is longing for us to come back. Not angry and vengeful. He longs for us to return. Does anyone need to hear that today? Maybe you've failed again. You feel a long way away from God. You can't pray because you feel too hypocritical to pray. But if you can't pray, where do you turn? The world? The world's the problem, you know that. How do you find a pathway out of this same old paradigm? Before you find the path, you need to hear James's third paradigm problem. Paradigm problem number three, the devil. In coming to study James again, I'd forgotten how oriented to the problem of evil James is. The third antagonist in this paradigm is the devil, the fallen angel, the accuser of the brethren, known as the Satan. James says, verse 7, Submit yourselves then to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Resist the devil, the diabolos. Diabolo means to slander, accuse, defame. The devil is a slanderer, a false accuser, the diabolos aims to unjustly criticize, to hurt, malign and condemn, to sever relationships. James says you can resist him. He's been building his spiritual warfare case throughout his very practical yet very spiritual book. In chapter 1 James said we all have temptations that come from the evil one. In chapter 3 he says the tongue is set on fire by hell itself. Again in chapter 3, we, we, he says we need to avoid wisdom from below, which is demonic. 
Now he says, we need to resist the devil. He can be resisted. And when he is resisted, it is possible for him to flee from you. Of course, this is what Jesus did in the wilderness. He resisted the devil. When I think of resistance, I think of um, World War II and the resistance fighters against the Nazis. They were committed to not being taken along by the tide. They stood their ground, which is the essence of spiritual warfare resistance. It's what Paul says in Ephesians 6. Finally, verse 10, Be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. Take your stand. You might remember Alan Ang's sermon on spiritual warfare last year. To stand means histami. Here the word for resistance is ant histami. We can take our stand to resist the devil only because one truly took our stand against him, Jesus Christ. The perfect Lamb of God has defeated the devil by resisting the temptation to sin on our behalf. Amen. Jesus Christ has done what the first Adam could not do. And by faith in Christ, we are found in Christ. And because Christ stood his ground, we can stand in him and the devil will flee. The paradigm of life. We struggle against the flesh internally. We struggle against the world externally. We struggle against the devil spiritually. What is the pathway? James says this is the pathway to life and life more abundantly. Submit yourselves to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will lift you up. The pathway is clear. Draw near. Draw near. James has already told us in verse 6, there is more grace. There is enough grace for you and I to draw near. The language of draw near is to come to the altar. It's drawing near to the very presence of God as one would come in the Old Testament to the altar. Draw near with submission and reverence in your heart. And when you are near, it's the language of sacrifice. Wash your hands. Purify your heart. Psalm 24 says, Who may ascend the mountain of the Lord? Who may stand in his holy place? The one who has clean hands and a pure heart. Who has clean hands and a pure heart? Yeah, only Jesus. We come into the presence of God through the sacrifice Jesus made by dying in our place. Hebrews 10.14 says, For by one sacrifice he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. There's that word teleos again, made perfect. It's Jesus who makes us perfect. And yet by his spirit there is an ongoing process of sanctification whereby we become more and more what he has declared us to be by his grace. The pathway is submit to God, draw near to God, be cleansed by the blood of Christ, feel the meaning of true repentance, grieve, mourn and wail, humble yourself, be lifted up. So who needs to be lifted up into a restored relationship with your Father in Heaven? 
Who has been struggling with the internal voices, the internal desires, the inner bent towards that which you know squeezes out life from you? Who has been battling with friendship with a bad friend, the world? The world is not a good friend. The Holy Spirit of God works with our conscience, doesn't he? You know what parts of the world you're becoming friends with? Antihistamine. Take your stand against the world. And as you do, take your stand against the slanderer, the accuser, the defamer, the abolos, the devil. We're in this together. Let's take our stand together as the people of God. Draw near. Come to the altar. The sacrifice has already been made. The invitation is for us. It's for all of us. Draw near and confess in humility and gratitude. We need you, God. We need you, Jesus. We need you, Holy Spirit. As David said in Psalm 51, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. Thank you, Jesus, for making a way through this paradigm of life. A pathway back to the Father. Thank you that there is enough grace for all of us. Lord God, we so need your protection in this multi-tiered challenging paradigm called life lord we need peace in our hearts we need direction and protection from the onslaught of the world and its ideology and lord god we need protection in our minds from the accuser the evil one the devil who is out to defame and defraud and make us think that we are not acceptable by the father even through jesus Thank you that you've made a way in Christ for us to draw near to you. And Lord, for all of us here listening to this sermon who need to hear the words, would you prompt hearts and pour out grace and do a work that only you can do, we ask in Jesus' name.